0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Sweetwater Christian Church. Welcome again, everyone joining us online to worship with us. Uh, Glad you're here. I'm Zane Goggins. I'm the pastor, and I'm glad to be with you to share the love and word of God with you this morning. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Lord for receptive hearts and minds as we hear his words today. So uh, pray along with me. Father, I ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts <clears throat> that receive your love and word this morning. I pray that everything I made up would fall on the ground and not be remembered. But Lord, I ask that everything that you have to say to us today will be received with gladness and joy and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask for the grace to love him more now than we do even now. More in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> we're continuing on in uh, our series on the Beatitudes. Uh, it's called Blessed. That's what I'm calling the series, Blessed. It's uh, week number two out of eight. so we're we're camping out in just one passage of Scripture to allow the words of God to wash over us, and ultimately, shape us into people who live a kingdom of heaven kind of life. And we're doing that for two months. A kingdom of heaven kind of life does not look like the kind of life that is demanded of us between Sundays. In the eight Beatitudes, Jesus announces to the world the way things actually work. He announces to all of creation the kinds of people who have something to be happy about in the kingdom of heaven. And these eight announcements are probably not what you would expect when you think of blessed people or happy people. You see, between Sundays, the message out there is that the well-off are happy. People who have plenty and then a little extra just in case, both physically and spiritually. You got to get ahead of others. That's the standard of life. Between Sundays, the message is the happier you are, the better off you are. And so we put our smiling faces out on social media. And when people ask us how we're doing, we say, I'm fine or I'm good. Out there, the message is that the happy people are the go getters, the ones who make things happen, the generators of business, not cogs in the wheel, but the linchpin that holds the wheel in place. Out there, the message is not that peacemaking is what brings happiness, but recreational outrage does. Out there, the message is not, <clears throat> uh, you know, be kind. <laughs> Out there, the message is, if you can put a zinger on Twitter and get those retweets and follows, then man, you've really influenced somebody's life. The message between Sundays about what gives you something to be happy about is upside down. It's almost entirely opposite of what Jesus, our teacher, and our God says about the way the world actually works. And that's why we're doing this series. We're We're steeping ourselves in the Beatitudes because we want to be like Jesus. We want to see the world the way Jesus sees the world, and we want to live in it the way that he lived in the world. And in order to be like Christ, we have to take what he says seriously. And when it comes to listening to what he taught us, there's probably no better place to start than in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we learned that the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters five and six in Matthew, uh, are the foundational teachings of the Christian faith. They're the foundation. Uh, They are the foundation of of Christianity, but they're also the new standard of life that Jesus gives to his followers. It's no longer the message out there. But it's the message of Jesus that shows us what the standard of life actually is. And the eight Beatitudes are Jesus' observations about who has something to be happy about in the kingdom of heaven because their standard of life is the same as Jesus' standard. For those who may not have been here last week as a church, for the rest of the series, which is now seven weeks, we are memorizing the eight Beatitudes as a spiritual practice. And so I'm encouraging everyone to memorize all eight of them and to say them out loud once per day for eight weeks, now seven weeks. And some of us have been doing it for seven days now, and maybe uh, you're starting today, whether you're starting today or you've already started. Uh, I want everybody to take one of the cards on the foyer. The little cards, they look just like this the blue card. It has all eight Beatitudes on it. Take several cards. We have way too many for the number of people in the church. So take like five or six, put them in your wallet, put it in a car, put it on your nightstand as a way of reminding you to say them and to memorize them. And why are we memorizing scripture? It feels like something kids do in Sunday school. I can assure you that none of us are above memorizing the words of Jesus. It's not a gimmick. It's not a fun summer activity that I came up with to keep you all engaged for the summer. It's not something to do just to do. As a church, we're memorizing the eight Beatitudes and saying them out loud once per day because our standard of life is the message of Jesus. And I've personally seen the kind of spiritual growth of reciting these eight sentences every day can do. And I I can't explain it, but I can testify to it. So memorize them with me and say them out loud with me once a day. And together we'll start to see growth and we'll get to see what the world is actually like. So we will be in Matthew 5, 1 through 10. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Bibles in front of you or under you. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. If you want to study the Bible together, email me and we'll set up a time. Matthew 5, 1 through 10. For context, you may have heard some of this last week, but Jesus is really just starting his ministry. This is really the first time he's actually started really to teach. And so, so far, he's been traveling from town to town proclaiming his message. And that message is, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's close. It's right among us. And he's healed some people here and there. And his ministry is really starting to gain some momentum. And it's gained enough momentum that crowds are starting to follow him in hopes of hearing more about this kingdom of heaven stuff. And so no one else is really preaching the way Jesus is preaching. And people are curious about what it means that the kingdom of heaven is, is close, it's near. What, what is that message? What, what does it mean? And so beginning in chapter 5 and all the way through the end of 6 is Jesus' answer to that question. If I were to like stand here and recite it it would take 12 minutes. It's a 12-minute sermon. Jesus says it better than any preacher on Sunday morning, right? Jesus lays out the foundational teachings of the Christian faith. So that's where we pick up Matthew 5, 1 through 10. I'm reading from the NRSV today. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so since this is our second week in our series, this week we're focusing on the second beatitude, which is in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now remember last week we talked about that word blessed, 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 same words, it's just a different emphasis on a different syllable, right? And we learned that blessed doesn't mean that you're reaping the spiritual rewards from a life well-lived, but the word that Jesus uses just simply means happy or to have a happy disposition. It just means fortunate. And the entire list of the Beatitudes are the kinds of people that we look at, and traditionally we say, well, those people don't really seem very fortunate. Uh, Poor in spirit, meek, uh, persecuted. But out of all of the eight Beatitudes, this is the one that is probably the most paradoxical. The others are paradoxical because Jesus is flipping everything that we know on its head, but the language of this particular one presents us with a grammatically shocking truth. Blessed are those who mourn. Or, in more contemporary language, happy are the sad. That's what that means. It's almost like saying, up is down, red is blue. This beatitude is so upside down. How can mourners be blessed? How can the sad be happy? That's the big obvious question that arises from this foundational uh, teaching of the Christian faith. And by the end of the sermon, my goal is for us to understand this truth a lot more. But before we go on answering questions, I think there is more to this beatitude than just paradox. There's more than just happy is sad. This beatitude, I think, reestablishes a long-held but often forgotten truth about the character of God. And I think this beatitude speaks volumes about what God is like. As I was preparing for this sermon, uh, just like with any sermon, I did reading and research uh, before I actually started typing it out. Uh, And I start my research kind of basic, uh, probably the same way most of us start out when we want to learn more about something. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, often, I'll start with Google just to see what others are saying about a certain passage or theology or about Jesus. And from there, I move into my books in Hebrew or Greek or whatever. But I like to start with what I call a temperature check. Sort of cross-referencing my initial thoughts about a passage with what other people think about it. And look, Google is not research. I know, It's, it's a tool in the tool belt. But As I began to see what the popular voices were saying about this beatitude, the more frustrated I became. It's like every popular site with a popular theologian had the exact same thing to say, like a yes, you can copy my homework, just make it look a little different kind of situation. And the one reworded explanation that they were all giving just was not satisfactory to me. I don't think it was thoughtful. I don't think it was researched. It seemed fine. It didn't seem untrue. But it's like no one wanted to say what Jesus was saying. Everyone else wanted to make this beatitude about mourning over your sin that mourning over your sin makes you blessed because others who aren't sad about their sin in their life aren't blessed and i don't know that's not necessarily like untrue right it's it's not particularly wrong i think we should lament over the sin that we participate in because that's spiritually good and that's spiritually healthy and it falls right in line with when jesus says repent turn around but i'm just not as comfortable with adding completely new words and ideas to what Jesus' words are. I'm not comfortable with putting that much into Jesus' mouth. It's just not what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are people who mourn. And that's it. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't add some spiritual explanation to it. He just stops at mourn. And I think as followers of Jesus, we should too. We should stop at mourn. Yes, lament over your sins and repent, obviously. But here, we shouldn't add to Jesus's words. We should accept Jesus's words and follow them. And when we accept Jesus at his word, something about the character of God really shines through this this beatitude. All throughout the Bible, There is a characteristic of God that never, ever fails. It just does not fail. And that is, God comforts mourners. God cares for mourners. We don't see it all the time in Scripture, maybe because we ourselves aren't always mourning, Or maybe we aren't around others who are mourning very often. As a a culture, we tend to keep mourning to ourselves as psychologically and spiritually damaging that actually is. We don't like to see others mourn, and we don't like to show others when we are mourning. There are entire books in the Bible dedicated to mourning. If you read the Bible, you will find mourners. There is a book in the Bible called Lamentations, Lamenting. It's called Crying. That's what the book is called. There's a book called Job. Almost all of the minor prophets, the smaller books in the prophets, almost half of the Psalms are committed to mourning, and mourning is as common in the Bible as just about anything else is. But one thing that remains true in all of the mourning of the Bible, God Comforts mourners. If I gave you all of them, we would be here forever, but here's some of the best ones. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore. This week, I had the opportunity to be with a few mourners, some sad people. Uh, These aren't people that go to our church, but people who reached out because their pain was too burdensome to carry on their own, and so they wanted a pastor to talk to, and so I met with them. Two of them I got to meet with in my office this week, and I sat down and I listened to these strangers as they couldn't keep their mourning to themselves anymore. I listened as they sobbed, and they told me about their deeply profound losses. I mean deep cutting losses, the kind of losses that you try to avoid thinking about happening to you. Stories that you just can't do anything, but just be silent and cry along with them. Questions about how a good God can seem so cruel. There's really nothing to say. Each person felt as though the clouds over them just weren't moving. When we're in deep mourning like that, it's hard to see past tomorrow, much less into the next week. The light at the end of the tunnel just feels like a truism, just a nice thing that we say. It doesn't feel real in our moments of mourning, and I felt as though the only thing I could say were just the words that God already gave us. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He will wipe away every tear, and you will be comforted because that's just what God does. He comforts mourners. Not that you're experiencing comfort in the here and now, but Jesus says you will be comforted. It's coming. It may not be here yet, but it's on its way. God is on his way. He's nearby and he's bringing comfort with him. Now is not always. God is on his way. This is why mourners are blessed because God is on his way to them. He will take care of those who mourn. For two of the people I met with, the truth of God eventually turning night into day, of a, of a coming comfort was, was helpful for them. But for one of them, through tears, they asked, but what is he doing in the meantime? What's he waiting for? Man, talk about not feeling prepared, <laughs> Uh, those kind of things, they don't really teach you. In seminary, you just read a lot of books about those situations. And but when an actual person asks you why God hasn't comforted them in the middle of their grief, you start to feel like you just don't know what you're doing. This actually happened to Jesus. Later on in his ministry, um, Jesus had a, a really good group of friends in a town about two miles from Jerusalem. It's a town called Bethany. Um, And Jesus stayed in this town of Bethany with his three friends who all lived in the same house. And his friends are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You've probably heard those names. Good friends of Jesus, maybe even childhood friends of Jesus. Well, Jesus is off somewhere in Jerusalem. He's doing his thing. He's teaching uh, He's teaching the people about how he is a good shepherd and the Pharisees are like wolves who don't care about people. He's doing his thing and then Jesus gets a message from someone. This is how mail worked in the ancient world. You pay somebody to go find somebody to tell them something. And Jesus gets an important message and it's not a good message. I just imagine Jesus hearing the words, he whom you love is ill. And I just imagine his heart sinking. He knows who it's about. It's about his friend Lazarus. One of my appointments this week got the same kind of message given to them. A person that they loved was sick. Sick enough for someone to let them know that it's actually very serious. Someone he loves is going to pass away. And they're letting him know that he should probably go to Bethany as soon as he can. Jesus goes, and he's actually too late. By the time he gets there, his friend, his loved one, Lazarus, has already been dead for four days and he's been buried. And when he gets to the town, he finds himself surrounded by friends and family. Uh, Sitting Shiva is kind of what what it's called in the Jewish culture. When someone dies, your friends and family come and they just sit and cry with you for seven days. And everyone is sobbing, trying to console Martha and Mary. And Martha, she hears that Jesus just came to town. And so she goes up to Jesus and she says... Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Mary finds out that Jesus came. And then she goes up to Jesus and almost word for word has the same heartbreaking response as Martha. Lord, if you had been been here, Lazarus would not be dead. They've been crying for four days. They've all been in mourning, and Jesus was not around. Even, they even tried to reach out to him in hopes that he would come and heal Lazarus and prevent this cruel and debilitating sadness and unbearable loss. And they both look Jesus in the eye, and they boldly ask him, where have you been this whole time? what have you been doing while we have been hurting? And Jesus says to them, I am the resurrection and Lazarus will rise again. And they don't really quite understand what Jesus is saying. And so they say back, yeah, we know he's going to rise again at the end of time, but what are you doing in the meantime? They don't say those words verbatim, but you can infer that question from the text. And They're wondering what Jesus is doing before they're all finally comforted. And the response we get from Jesus is famous because it's the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That's what Jesus is doing in the meantime. In the time of your mourning, before you can even begin to imagine what comfort looks like, what life afterward could possibly look like, Jesus, like no other God we could ever dream up, weeps with you. When the clouds don't seem to move, when you're in the middle of your mourning, days that we will all go through. God is on his way to you, and he's crying on the way there. This is the character of God in the Beatitude. This is the character of God that is consistent throughout the Bible. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the sad, for God is coming to comfort them. And in the meantime, God is mourning with the mourners. And if and when you find yourself in this position, in the kingdom of God, you are blessed. We're going to pray, and we're going to take communion together as a family. Let's pray. God, I thank you for how How earthy you are, how you don't sweep under mourning under the rug of joy, how you don't push away our feelings of grief and say, oh, you should feel joyful, you should be rejoicing. But God, as our loving parent, you say to us, hey, I'm there with you and I'm coming. God, I thank you that this is a foundational teaching of the Christian faith, that you are with those who mourn. You're so fantastic, I couldn't even begin to think of something like that. We love you. We ask for the grace to love you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen.